Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. A quick note up top here. I have been releasing episodes weekly, but I've had this nice long episode with Kyle in the hopper waiting for a week where I couldn't do that. And this is that week. Next weekend, I will be at the Bad Christian Conference in Dallas, Texas. And so today I'm releasing this two-hour behemoth with Kyle Roberts. So feel free to listen to it in multiple sittings. I won't be offended. Absorb it. It is tightly edited, but there's a lot in here. Okay. Thank you guys. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. I remember being in college and thinking to myself very clearly, I will never end up a liberal Christian. Somehow this was worse in my mind than the idea of becoming an atheist. And I'm still thinking about that, and I find it a really intriguing question. I don't know how to untangle all the psychological factors there. This is going to be a long episode. I assume that many of you will listen to it in chunks, and that's perfectly fine. 
I did edit all of these conversations a lot to make them really concise, but it's just a big topic. And the main point of the episode was really to get a 30,000-foot view of how a progressive Christian thinks about all kinds of issues, the Trinity, the resurrection, the Bible, the atonement of sins, homosexuality, and more. To do this and to do it well took a while. Now, one thing I want to say, given all this time I spend with Kyle, it might seem like only progressive Christians, only liberal Christians can do good theological or textual work. But of course, that is not true. Kyle doesn't believe that. I don't believe that. You don't have to become a theologically liberal Christian, but you do have permission to check it out. And there are millions of thoughtful and loving Christians who have found this way of thinking about God and the Bible more conducive to their faith in Christ. And yes, I do consider myself to be in that group. My worst college age fears have come true, but I got to say it's not as bad as I thought. Now, here's how this episode is structured. First, we're going to talk to Ben Keeney, a friend of mine. Then we're going to go to Kyle, and that's going to be the chunk of the episode. Kyle Roberts is the dean of United Seminary of the Twin Cities and also the author of multiple books. And we're going to get his whole kind of story and, and theological progressive program. Then we're going to have him address particular concerns that Ben brought up in his short interview at the beginning. And then finally, we're going to go back to Ben and we're going to see what about Kyle's interview stuck with him, if it changed his mind on anything, how it has him thinking about all of this stuff. So that's the order. Thanks for sticking with me. First, I want to introduce you to Ben. Ben Keeney was the only child of a Southern Baptist pastor from Texas. He went to Bible college and at some point in his mid-20s found himself in the Reformed movement. That's the type of Christianity that comes from Calvin and Luther. He ended up at Mars Hill Church in Seattle, the now infamous megachurch led by Pastor Mark Driscoll, which shuttered its doors amidst heaps of controversy and which left incredible destruction in its wake. That event caused Ben to rethink a lot of his own theology, and mostly what we will hear from Ben today is not the stance of a tried-and-true conservative Christian, completely wary or even afraid of liberals or progressives. Rather, Ben presents a middle position. He sees a slippery slope on the left that leads away from God's revealed truth, but there's a corresponding slope on the right, possibly even more slippery, that leads to close-fisted and cold fundamentalism. Nonetheless, Ben has his worries about progressive theology, which is what made him an ideal interview for today's episode. You describe yourself as reformed, is that right? I wouldn't call myself conservative. I'm probably more traditional. I believe pretty heavily in the uh, sovereignty of God and to the point where I'm okay, maybe logically, with the idea that if God is all-powerful, then that means that he is responsible for people's eternal destiny, regardless of their choice and regardless of uh, how much that sucks. And it, it's a very difficult thing to try to grapple with. Yeah, at the end of the day, I probably would be more comfortable at a Reformed church than at a progressive church. So in your own mind, do you have a definition or even just kind of a working definition 
for progressive Christianity or progressive theology? What makes it different than a more traditional view? I think it seems to um, all come down to how you view the Bible. Yeah, it seems um, that every progressive Christian I know would sort of lump the Bible as um, one of many revelations towards the love of God. It's kind of the shalom idea of peace and unity and uh, and wholeness, and that we are uh, learning, kind of evolving and growing as a maybe a species or creation or whatever in the love of God and understanding it more and more. When you think of the term theologically progressive or progressive Christians, not in a political sense, but in a theological sense, what comes to mind? Theologically weak. um, I would probably say emotionally based. These are going to sound really harsh. No, 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 no. Yeah. We, we, we hope you're just honest and we know that that doesn't, we know that means you don't think that people are a bunch of jerks just because they believe this. Uh, no, I, and and it's really um, the last few years where that's probably what I would have said and just kept it there. And now it's it's much different. It's more there's a lot more respect because of the friends I have that are theologically progressive. There's a lot more um, depth, and I don't think it's ever a heart that is against God that makes someone become a theologically progressive Christian. It's not emotional in this like negative emotions. It's usually out of trying to reconcile a God of love and seeing other things in the Bible and being like, well, then we have to look at the Bible differently. There is some danger for you, right, in in going down that path uh, or taking those progressive arguments seriously. What What's dangerous about that? Right. I think the biggest danger is viewing, therefore, truth, ultimate truth, as really relative. The most obvious that I've seen amongst uh, friends that have began to view the Bible in a progressive way, then the Bible really has no real authority. It's not sacred in the sense that it's above maybe reproach, like if it's clearly telling you something to do. What C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, I think, applies pretty heavily, where it's generally like, well, Paul's view on sexuality was incomplete or wrong. Maybe even some things Jesus said, maybe even like prophets and definitely however Israel interpreted a lot of what God said. It seems like there's the mindset of, oh, well, they did the best for what they had, but we're further along now. And I think that that's really, really troubling and a little pretentious. And it just leads to relativism. What it leads to is the danger of, well, I don't like that. So that was because they weren't evolved. And that was like super ahead. I love this. This is super ahead of its time. And I think that it, it, it is a slippery slope. It can be a slippery slope just as much as anything else. Fundamentalism, I think we've seen is, is a really weird slippery slope that is just as um, not Christian, in my opinion. Um, One thing you said, and I think you're right about this, and I think that Kyle is going to say something very similar too, that the dividing line really comes down to what you think you can do with the Bible or what kind of license you think you have with the Bible. So in your mind, what license should a Christian have, and then what is the license that a progressive takes that's too far? 
that does not accord with what the Bible is. Oh, that's so hard. Okay. And, um, and we, we know you're not a theologian and we understand we're going to give you uh, some grace there, but just, you know, in, in your own words. I think for the traditional Christian, you have to view the scriptures as divine. And there is a lot of work there. Um, I think, uh, I think one of the questions is, are, should you question it? And like how much, if you read the Psalms, I think the writers are very, what we would say, in a bad place with God, specifically, where they're just calling out God. They're questioning his nature. They're questioning what he's promised, calling him a liar. Um, yeah, there's definitely a sense, especially in the Old Testament, of really wrestling that, that seems to be quite okay by Jewish standards, at least, of right. like, yeah, calling God out. Yeah, but all of that is under the assumption that the scriptures are from God. So what appears to you to be the dividing line then if there are sort of more traditional scholars and more progressive scholars and they're both using some of the same anyway sort of methods? Uh, what what seems to be the dividing line between those groups? Mm, that's a good question. And it's okay if you don't – I mean you're, you don't study this stuff for a living or anything, but I'm just wondering if you have a sense of it. Uh, my sense is that just the view of the nature of the relevancy of Scripture. Relevancy. Yeah, it was written at this place, this time, and I think traditional Christians will be like, once you do the work, you will come to the conclusions of uh, penal substitutionary atonement, of all these heavy things that a traditional Christian believes, of hell, of heaven. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like progressive Christianity doesn't have as much of a systematic theology of, of the whole of Scripture. It, a lot of it maybe seems more reactionary to correct correct traditional Christian thoughts where we think that we, we, we've gone astray from. Can you imagine um, a scholar or a person reading scholars who, because of how seriously they take the text and mm-hmm. they know that they need to figure out what this thing means – they do that kind of critical work or they read the critical work and then that actually leads them to say, oh, the traditional view of this thing seems to be false and I need this text to inform my community of faith. So I need a new reading so that I can continue to use it, so that my church can continue to use it in a way that avoids error. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I can't imagine that. I think I've I've heard of um, I've heard different progressive theologians and scholars uh, even do that. And to be a, like harsh and uh, as a layperson can get when I hear it, um, I think they're just very good proof texters. <laughs> it's kind of what I think. You could say that for both sides, I guess. But I've I've always been like, okay, well, there's there's definitely other scriptures that in references that could just say that you're wrong on that. You know what I mean? That's kind of why I was talking about like a systematic, like it's not just one or two spots, like it's coherent throughout. If you're going to be progressive, then I think you do have to throw out kind of like so much of what you don't like about God. And that's what it always seems to be like. Well, we know that God can't be like this. Therefore there has to be a reason. 
and I think a, a lot of times that progressive Christianity tends to sound a lot like maybe Christian agnostics of just like, well, I don't really know. And there's some beauty in that. There is a lot we don't know, and it's great to be there, but there are some things that you do know. And I think that there's a lot of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. What are the kinds of things that a progressive Christian will end up not affirming that they should have still affirmed or that a traditional Christian would affirm? Yeah, I'm not totally sure. That'll be something that you'll probably have to confirm. But I suspect probably right out the gate would be um, hell and damnation and people going to hell and its eternal nature of punishment. Probably um, in a lot of the Old Testament that has to deal with a genocide, that has to deal with uh, commandments to kill. It really, at the end of the day, it's everything that people don't like about the Bible, myself included. Probably even death, burial, resurrection, maybe. Not sure. Yeah, so you're starting, it sounds like like you're starting and saying, well, a progressive will get to, get to, listen to how I'm saying this, will get to disbelieve in all this really rough stuff. But obviously the worry is that they'll go further and they'll disbelieve in some really beautiful and good stuff. What, What is that stuff that you think will end up on the chopping block unnecessarily? I personally think that the nature of the cross gets thrown out really quick. And if it happened at all, then it turns out to only be as an example of love. Maybe what else? Um, any kind, anything that seems exclusionary. And an easy one would be, I, I would think it that there wouldn't be any progressive Christians that would be complementarian or limit the role of women in leadership. I can't really think. Uh, oh, probably the nature of our like total depravity. I think that almost all of TULIP <laughs> probably go yeah, out the window pretty the quick. the Calvinist uh, acronym yeah. TULIP, yeah. Do you imagine a progressive Christian's views would change on like God as a trinity? I, I don't think so. I don't see why. What about Jesus as both fully divine and fully human? Yeah, so yeah, that's one of the things that I would kind of go under a slippery slope as far as traditional Christians would be like, well, he needed he needed to be fully human and fully God to atone for the sins of the world. And if you're a universalist, I guess you can still believe that, but it starts to starts to get at the heart of I think our depravity and our inherent uh, wickedness that I sense progressive Christians frown upon that. What about the resurrection of Jesus? Yeah, good question. I have no idea. I'll just say that. <laughs> it, se- it seems like if you don't believe he rose from the dead, then you really just shouldn't call yourself a Christian anymore. Well, that's kind of what Paul said. Like, there's just really no actual hope for our sins being forgiven. How do you think that um, a progressive Christian will, will end up modifying their understanding of the atonement? Um, not as something that his blood paid for, um, not as penal substitutionary atonement. They would just deny that, deny that God needed to do that, would see it as barbaric. Granted, I think everyone has to admit that God didn't have to do it that way. Like he doesn't have to use the DNA of blood poured out, you know, to make this, I don't know, because it's all ethereal, right? It's all like our sin isn't a physical thing. 
that's where a lot of the slippery slope goes from is just denying that the cross did that, that it actually historically did atone for sin. A common thing we hear in these conversations between more traditional and more progressive Christians is that uh, liberal Christians are caving into culture. They're caving into cultural norms and pressures in a way that traditional Christians are not. Does that seem to you to be the case? Yes. Well, I don't I can't speak to if it's because of that. So you're saying you see a correlation but not necessarily causation. I guess I'd be hesitant to call it a causation. I just know that it's always seems like when I'm saying slippery slope and how it ends, that's what it always seems to end where nothing that our culture values you would say is wrong and nothing that so it might not be that the culture is causing them to change, but in your mind, it sure is convenient how, <laughs> how much their final positions end up causing very little friction with popular culture in America. It seems that the result is a relative relativity to truth that I think is the sort of the, the central sin of progressive Christianity. And on the flip side, the central sin of fundamentalism is a departure from from love and compassion and grace. Yeah, I was just going to ask, would you be open to an argument that said, sure, Rob Bell and those who like him are probably caving into an Oprah-style culture on the left, but also here is a corresponding population of conservative Christians who are caving to just a, a red state conservative kind of culture on the right? 100%. And I should be clear, I think that a, a fundamentalist Christian has is on a opposite side, slippery slope, probably faster than a progressive Christian. Interesting. Just that line between affirming and loving and not equating those with being the same thing. I think our culture equates affirmation and love the same. And I don't think God does. It's a lesson on the other side that a progressive Christian probably could use learning of um, yes, God is love and God is light in the same in the same epistle. Light meaning holy. Like there's you can't just get rid of anything you don't like that doesn't sound like what our culture would define as love. In your mind, is there room at the table within Christianity for progressive Christians and traditional Christians, or is this a, a dividing line that? People, it's serious enough that people really need to figure it out, and we're really talking about different things here. On both cases, we can be talking about different things. Like if you remove grace from fundamentalist Christ, Christianity and traditional Christianity, then you're talking about something totally different. If you remove the truth of of scriptures, the nature of it, then you could you can be talking about something else. But I think that I have found a lot of comfort and compelling thoughts that have I think have helped me pursue God and love others. Like it has moved the needle in the last few years from being like a progressive Christian is not a Christian to being, hey, they're my brother and sister. And and two, even further, I have a lot to learn. I think from what they've been saying and, and that heart that I need more of that heart. I need more of a compassionate, not just to say that they're um, <laughs> a progressive Christian is like a hippie and, and there's some hippie things that I need to learn, but there's also some very deep thought out logical 
theology that I need to respect and pursue. And we love truth so much that we need to just understand that it can defend itself after you sift and and everything, that that is what will remain. I always view truth as a statue. And a lot of what we've done in America is just like added all these things and you need to just keep chipping away at it. So that was Ben. And now we are going to start our conversation with Kyle Roberts, Dean of United Seminary of the Twin Cities. Here's my conversation with Kyle. So, Kyle, let's maybe start here. You and I both think that people have permission to be progressive Christians, but some progressive Christians can get pretty militant and can make it sound like people don't have permission not to be progressive Christians. That if they're not progressive enough, then they're somehow failing Jesus, failing the gospel, failing their brothers and sisters. So why don't we just start by you saying why you think people also have permission to not be progressive? Start with a softball question, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Just as, as a basic principle of civil relationships that we need to allow others the freedom to uh, think and believe and have their own process of understanding God, interpreting scripture. And I think for me, I'd say, I think I have quite a bit of, I don't want to say because it sounds patronizing, but empathy or understanding or provide space for more traditional perspectives and people that I know and love uh, more conservative because that's I I was once there. I understand the framework that can lead to certain interpretations, convictions, standpoints. I've heard it said that there is no vantage point from which we have a completely uncultured, unsituated, clear-eyed view at the tradition or at the text or even, you know, what God is saying to us, that it's kind of a realization that, look, every moment in church history— is a moment like our moment where people have a whole history behind them. They have stuff ahead of them. They have modern knowledge. They have traditional knowledge. And so it's not like, oh, we're trespassing 2,000 years of unbroken tradition by questioning this. There's been – that's been a movement all along from the beginning. Is that is that right? There has never been a moment where human beings could step out of the flowing river of time flowing river of history and culture and worldview and so on to have this God's eye view. Is there such a thing as a God's eye view? Well, there might be, but only God has it. And even the scriptures themselves reflect limitations of those who don't have a God's eye view uh, because they are written in historical times and places by human beings. And we could still use the the descriptions like an inspired word of God, but acknowledging that that word of God comes mediated through the world and that theological traditions obviously are mediated through history and particular situations and circumstances with political aspects to them and different linguistic issues or constructs. What is your definition of progressive theology? Like, what are we even talking about here? There, there isn't a single set of beliefs that constitute a progressive theologian or a progressive Christian theologian. 
So for me, it's more of an attitude, an approach, a kind of mindset um, that really does get back to the sense that it is not only possible to question and to look again at the scriptures or our interpretations of them, it is actually our responsibility to do that, to engage traditions within our religious frame with an eye to always being open to the voice of God in a new way, in a fresh way. What is the Spirit saying to the churches, not just then, but even now? And maybe concretely we might we might include as the voice of God other ways that we come to true beliefs like science and history and etc. Absolutely. So you take a seminary class, what's the first one of the first things that you encounter is the Wesleyan quadrilateral or some version of that where, okay, it's not only the Bible that's authoritative. It's not only scripture that's a source for our theologizing, but it's also experience. It's tradition or traditions. It's reason, rationality, and the various forms of thinking that uh, can take shape as we critically reflect through our curiosity and so forth on the world. So it's all those disciplines of, of uh, science and sociology and psychology and all of that, but also just personal experiences and relationships. And so many, so much of our theologies can change because of relationships that we have that kind of open us to new insights, and just new understandings of, of the world and of human beings. Talk about your church childhood. You were raised an evangelical pastor's kid, but can you fill in some of the details of that for us? Not just a PK or a pastor's kid, but a GPK, grand, I don't even know if that third makes generation. sense. Third generation. You know what I mean? Third, third generation, very Baptist, Southern Baptist, went to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, sometimes Tuesday night for visitation. It was a very, very active church life in our home. And I loved, you know, I loved so much of it. I, I never rejected, you know, I never really rebelled kind of the archetypal PK that uh, goes off the deep end. And I, I attribute a lot of, of that to the you know flexibility that my parents had and kind of the, the willingness to let us be ourselves as kids. My sister and I went on to undergraduate at Wheaton College where I got exposed to the big, broad world of evangelicalism. Now you're you're being a bit sarcastic here. That it's not that broad of a world, or was it much more broad than what you had known? Or what do you mean? It was actually broader than what I had known growing up as a Southern Baptist in a you know a single denomination in a single church. You know, it, it, and I was being a little hyperbolic or sarcastic, but there was a, tr- a sense in which I kind of encountered mainstream evangelicals, Presbyterians, you know, who used liturgy in church and uh, whose parents drank wine or beer. (laughs) As you are at Wheaton, doing undergrad, studying philosophy, studying literature, how are you starting to think differently about your theology or about sort of what is available to you? Really, the thinking differently probably didn't start to become more dramatic or visceral or um, kind of worldview unsettling, really probably until late into my junior year, senior year, taking some upper level senior seminars in epistemology and um, the theory of knowledge, the theory of knowledge and truth. And how do we know 
that we know that we know and aren't all of our beliefs really just opinions and perceptions that are sort of cobbled together through a very slim focused set of experiences and uh, personal judgments and social uh, pressures and all of those things. So kind of getting into the, the weeds of that, uh, of peeling back the layers in a sense, or kind of taking a meta look at uh, my own beliefs and uh, well, aren't I just a Christian because my parents were, you know, some of those questions that most people come to probably without having to be provoked by philosophy. Uh, you, you required uh, stricter required, measures. Yeah. You know, reading postmodern philosophy. And then that's where I encountered uh, the thought of Soren Kierkegaard for the first time. Um, who And we should note you are an actual Kierkegaard scholar. That's kind of your area of expertise. I, I'm an actual one of those, yeah. So, but he gave me a different way of thinking about Christianity and faith, um, which was so new and novel. It really opened me to different ways of conceptualizing faith, thinking of it as not something that needs to be or should be supported by evidence or arguments or proofs for the existence of God or the historical resurrection but as faith of its own essence, that the definition of faith being that it is a kind of a, a leap or a launch or a, 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 a trust without relying on these evidential evidentiary supports. Let's just focusing on your childhood, high school, and then at Wheaton. At any point there, did you feel or, or when did you start to feel permission to look at more, quote, progressive or liberal uh, understandings. Did you feel that at home with your parents? Did you not feel that until college? Did you not feel that until you got your PhD? How, how did that really start to play out? I'd say I started to feel that freedom in college during, during some of those philosophy and theology courses. It was like, oh, so, you know, not only is it okay to have questions – but it's actually something we should do as thinking Christians, intellectually responsible Christians. So, so many times during my experience at Wheaton, you heard this phrase, the, the life of the mind or the Christian mind. or and, and they were really, my professors were really earnest and serious about kind of cultivating that life of thoughtful questioning that, you know, was done within the framework of a kind of faithful obedience, but that opened the envelope for far further than I had uh, before uh, ever felt was, uh, was really appropriate. Now, that's not true of all of my professors. I mentioned one of them and at the end of complicated pregnancy or toward the end of that book, who, when I asked the question about Cain and Abel and where did all these people come from, all of a sudden, uh, he looked at me like I just kicked his dog. And you know, it was the phrase I used. And I was like, why are you getting trying to get me to question my faith? So, yeah, it wasn't consistent across the board, but it was certainly during the that experience of those four years that yeah. it's like, okay, you can be a Christian and have these questions and pursue them, like earnestly pursue those questions. Yeah, I, you know, it, it puts me in mind of an experience that I, I've been thinking about recently. There was a moment for me as well in undergrad. I, I studied philosophy as well. Uh, at a state school in California, but I had this fantastic professor, Ken Walker. 
I ended up almost switching to literature, but I stayed in philosophy just because of him to take as many classes as I could mm. with him. And he was like at that time, like kind of a Catholic, like his wife was Catholic. He was very – cards were very close to the chest about his own faith. But I knew that there was something. You know, He was like super uh, you know, new Aquinas back and forth and all this stuff. And I remember coming to him at office hours one time and and like really somehow getting to the nub of, of what I was wondering. And I was like, if I follow this course that you have taken and that these classes are calling me toward, like, am I going to lose my faith? Asking mm-hmm. him that. And yeah. he said something like, you probably won't lose it, but it's going to be different than you think mm-hmm. it'll be. And I actually, I actually put that off. You know, I, uh, as you know, I joined a band, toured around the world for seven or eight years, and I'm, I kept thinking about this stuff, but I, I did sort of wait to do that because I was a little bit afraid of how yeah. it would look. Even though I really looked up to him, and I was like, I want my life to look like his life, but there, it was just worry there. Yeah, I and it is something you you start going down the path. You hear about the slippery slope, well, and it doesn't gonna... help uh, that it doesn't even help you, even though you know that slippery slope is technically a logical fallacy. It's yeah, still right. such a powerful argument, if if only psychologically powerful. Yes, that's right. Don't put your your foot on the slide. Um, you really can see. I don't know if it's linear, but a kind of. A natural progress of rethinking things. I mean, one of the for for many people, the first thing you might think about is I don't know, women in ministry. Well, Paul says this, but uh, you know, but he also says this, or you know, you you might think about creation in the Genesis account, literal creation or not. Yeah, Yeah, literal six six days. days, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't have to be six days. Uh, or a day can mean a long period of time, not just a 24 hour. Oh, you just got, you well, just yeah. started down the slope. There right? is, yeah, there is a, you might think it's a slippery or not, but there is certainly a continuum. There is certainly like yeah. a graph you could draw where on all the way over on one side is every word of this is true in the literal sense. And then anytime you drop from that, you have moved a bit. The thing that we don't realize is that almost all of us grow up in churches that don't actually do that, whether or not they say they do. And that's kind of what you were talking about, the the historical, the uh, enculturedness, the embeddedness, the sort of moment of every moment in Christian history and Christian tradition is like, well, we've already kind of made some moves away from that in certain ways, and we're just maybe not honest about the ones that we've made. Yeah, you know, how many churches today you go into a conservative evangelical whatever church and you're not going to see a whole lot of women wearing head coverings right right but hey it's in there right? and you might even see some dudes with long hair and are they sinning uh you don't hear that preached a lot right so we've already we're already on the slippery slope i think is an important recognition realization that you know but of course the way around that is to say well there are these universal principles over here and then there are these contextually limited teachings over here, and to to segregate out the universal timeless principle from the the contextually relevant application. But when you really start digging underneath the surface, there is no clean line. 
we were just looking at this, uh, the 10 commandments and, um, and then right after that, you have these other commandments that Moses gives to the people that are there to put into practice, which is how they're supposed to treat their, their, their slaves. That was a big, big component of that section. So it's like the 10 commandments are the timeless universal principles. These over here are culturally located, contextually significant, obviously outdated now. But, uh, you know, what, what is, it's, it's not as easy as it may seem to draw stark lines between a timeless principle and a what contextual application of a teaching or doctrine. What I'm suggesting is we're already on this slope. We already have this freedom to read the Bible critically through the lens of a modern worldview. We do it all the time anyway, even if we don't admit it or acknowledge it. So let's just be conscious that we're doing it, feel that we have the freedom to do it, and understand that it's actually a responsibility as a faithful Christian to do and it. Just do it as well as we can do it. Yeah, exactly. A lot of this conversation is coming from the introduction to your book, A Complicated Pregnancy, which is about the virgin birth and your uh, journey into trying to basically write a book in favor of it and ending up with the opposite kind of a book. Uh, we're going to do that separately in a different um, episode someday. But in your intro, you just have this amazing sort of biographical condensed tale, and, and that's what we're kind of talking through today. And you say that it's really when you started doing theology and teaching after you got the PhD or maybe as you were doing your student teaching that things started to really noticeably shift for you. Uh, what do you mean? Why do you think that happened? What is that shift? I think it is true that when you start to teach something, you really inhabit it in a way that's different than when you're just learning it. You, you, you kind of show up with your full self and with this material. And then now you're making choices right, about what you're going to assign to read to your students, what you're going to take time out of this two-hour, three-hour, four-hour block of class to investigate and engage. When what I found, too, when I started my full-time 10-year-track teaching career at Bethel Seminary back in those days was a quite a, a large student body, very diverse within the spectrum of kind of main stream evangelicalism, and even probably tilted progressive in terms of how the students, uh, their orientation toward theology and scripture, um, very, very inquisitive, uh, very uh, thoughtful, but also kind of assertive about, hey, let's, let's explore some stuff. And, and it was there in that experience that I was really kind of first confronted is the right word, but challenged to think deeply about the contextuality of theology. Whereas up till that point, really, even in my PhD program, that wasn't a big conversation. There wasn't a lot of sort of self-reflection about the situatedness of our theologies. We were doing metaphysics. We were doing Trinitarian theology. We were reading church fathers and church mothers and so on. Yeah, it was, it was very eye-opening. It was very challenging, but all very much in a good way, kind of destabilized by also, you, know, you can see a thread from Kierkegaard to that, from the sort of self-reflectedness of faith not being something that gives you a uh, God's eye perspective on the world, 
but is is an is an action is an event that occurs from within a subjective self who is located in time and space and you carry that over to the sense of theology as contextual theological reflection being an endeavor an activity that is done within a particular framework a perspective a time and space yeah and you know kierkegaard is uh largely railing against Hegel in his day. And, you know, there's a lot of things you could say about Hegel. But one of the things that seems relevant is that Hegel is one of the, like, great men of of capital T theory. He's, you know, he's purporting to have a sort of a synthesizing theory for how spirit moves in the world. And, of course, this is objectively true in, in some sense. And and Kierkegaard is like, look, you, there's no such thing as some big, unified, perfect theory that exists in the clouds. Like, you don't have access to that. You're, you fool. Your soul is required of you this very night. You yeah. sort of wake up kind of a thing. Yeah, Hegel was the system builder, you know, for Kierkegaard's view, assumed to have had the whole perspective on all of reality. How could you have that old perspective if you're not standing at the end of it and looking back, but you're in the middle of it. You're in that flowing river at a, at a certain point, And all you've got is that moment is sort of the existentialist framework of this located existing self who, from whom something is required, something is demanded. It's that that we're to attend to. We're not to be building these big uh, castles in the sky of theoretical thought and assume that they in any way represent reality as it actually is. I want to make two brief comments before we uh, move on to some more topical stuff and you can respond to either one or both. One thing is that I have come to appreciate how evangelicalism actually set me up to be able to respond to that kind of Kierkegaardian call. Something is required of me individually I don't just get to be a son of Abraham or a son of the Pope or whatever. Something is required of me. I got to show up. Um, there's, of course, maybe some psycho, some psychological, I don't know, guilt problems associated with that too. But it does set me up to respond. And then the second thing I wanted to say is that, you know, there's two ways of looking at the all we read is old white European men thesis. One way is to say, look, that's going to happen some because they just were the people who were able to think and write their stuff down. And they are really great thinkers and we we do need to keep reading them. And th- they are going to still hold, you know, a more than representative share of our time if we're if we're doing good theology just because at least at this point in history, the you know, a lot of the stuff you really do need to read to understand the non-white European thinkers, you know, comes from them. But then there's another, maybe we might say a more pernicious view, which is to say, well, actually, the Bible precludes uh, women, for instance, from doing this kind of work and teaching. Uh, and, you know, probably nobody would make much of an argument based on race for that, I don't think, today. But there, there's, there's sort of another way, which is like, and this is maybe a fear that, uh, I think that some conservatives had and that I had when I was younger that, well, if I, if I read feminist theology, then aren't I going against some precept of scripture? Like, it, am I getting myself into hot water uh, sort of before the fact? 
Both good questions. I mean, the first one, I totally agree and feel the same way. I think that Kierkegaard was such a profound voice for me at the time because I resonated with these evangelical instincts uh, in his thought. I mean, sort of the heart religion and the call to action and to obedience and you know faithful engagement with scripture and it's to be obedient and to be open to to god's leading and if that means attacking christendom the, the structures of the institutional church and creating something you know creating something new and different to respond to god and so be um, it and so be it a la luther or um, kierkegaard in his own way the second question i think is it is important to acknowledge all the great riches of the Christian story and the Christian tradition, uh, the Augustans and the Aquinas and all the other ones in between. You know, look, you got to read these people in their context. And sure, there were patriarchal emphasis and sure, there were, there were homophobic elements. And you, know, you read Martin Luther's stuff and, and of course, he's got the anti-Semitism there and you got to yeah. wrestle with that. And um, it's strong. It is not weak anti-Semitism. No. It is not weak. It is there, and it is it is hard to see that to read it. And for some, it's it, it basically means there's nothing of value. Yeah, isn't that kind of a microcosm of the decision to be willing to go a bit progressive? Is to say, look, I love Martin Luther. Look at this beautiful thing he had to say, and then look at this tract he wrote where he recommends that Jews have papers so that they can be more easily tracked as they move around the country. And just saying, I can't just take the whole thing. I have to yeah. parse it. And then right. are we going to do this? We might as well do the same with Aquinas and Augustine. And why, why stop at Luther? Yeah, that's right. It's the the ability to, to, to nuance your, your analysis or your perception enough to see what is good, to decipher what is useful and what is important, and then to understand where appropriate criticism needs to be and should be leveled and that you know we apply that to paul right apply that so back to kind of the scripture as well recognizing that that also is storied in the context of patriarchy and whatever else yeah i stopped short of paul but of course head coverings <laughs> and not allowing a woman to speak she can ask her husband when they get home we already do that with paul just like we do it with martin luther and the question is, will we be honest with ourselves about the fact that we do that? Yeah. So I run a Patreon account for people to be able to financially support my podcasting work. But I don't simply ask for money. I actually provide two distinct benefits to patrons. Number one is the You Have Permission Facebook group, which is for patrons only, where we discuss episodes and any other topic that people want to ask, questions I sometimes ask everybody, and we can really get into stuff that people are going through, and I'm really active in that group. And the second is two bonus episodes which come out every month for patrons only. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com. Those are the show notes. This month, the wonderful and wide-ranging conversation I had was with Justin McRoberts, a musician, theology nerd, and a podcast host. Sound familiar? 
we set out to talk about this question of whether or not it matters or should matter that various celebrities are or are not or are no longer Christians. In our kind of indie rock world, that means thinking about David Bazan or Julian Baker, Sufjan Stevens, but in the wider culture, it could be Lady Gaga, etc. And we did talk about that some, but we also got into some bigger questions about celebrity, about who is in our tribe, the effect that that has on our thinking. We talk about hell and the fear of hell, talk about the social power wielded by white Protestants in America, and some of the problems with the broadly speaking cultural left in which we both find ourselves. Just a whole bunch of stuff. I thought it was a really interesting conversation. Here's a few minutes worth of excerpts from that conversation. Should it matter that people are on my, you know, who share my faith? As a starting point, taking it personally, I think it does matter. The challenge becomes like how, uh, not how personally I take the relationship, but how personally I define the doorways through which people enter. Like, yeah, like the theological thing about like whether you should be in your mid 30s worrying about whether you're going to hell or not. Um, I don't know. Maybe you should. Maybe like I may, yeah. like may, may, maybe you should. I don't know. No, I think you totally shouldn't. And I, I don't <laughs> worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't I guess we don't know each other well enough. Uh, I should explain. I don't. I'm a universalist. And maybe, and gosh, I'm going to go way off the rails here doing this. And maybe if people who really took a literal hell more seriously thought more deeply, if it was the thing, if it was the thing you really cared about, really believed in, if you meditated on that, maybe you wouldn't vote for Donald Trump. Maybe, maybe, maybe if you honestly take a literal hell literally. If you actually take that seriously and the repercussions of life and choice point either to an eternity you know, of, uh, of bliss in heaven with the divine or an eternity of it, like suffering and fire, etc. If that's real for you, then maybe you don't make the moral compromise to, in, for the sake of political advancement. So I don't know, man, like, I, like you're going to find me doing this a lot where I'm like, there's probably <laughs> some, there's probably something good in that for a season, at least. Hmm. Hmm. Hell works as a motivation if you're not really thinking about it. Yeah. If you don't really think through what it means. And if you're the kind of person who does, I think probably it is only paralyzing and actually cannot engender genuine faith at all. That's probably really true for a lot of folks. That's my – that's kind of my uh, – I, I think that's a – I mean that seems take. to me like a real – like a very real landing place. There's no getting around the, the power that white American evangelicals have wielded in America for the last 40 years. It's a truckload yeah. of political and social power. Um, so, yeah. what if, so what if belonging to that tribe means I get to help steer the ship and one, I get to point out the ways that that has been incredibly positive – that there's a there's a ton of understanding of, of charity and uh, an understanding of, of relationship with the poor, an understanding of like a fiscal generosity as a pattern that yeah. uh, that, that comes from that is rooted in uh, American evangelical Christianity. There's that. Yeah, I mean, it's not that starts with the Great Awakenings. Yeah, right. And and the through line is to modern day evangelicalism. Right. And let's take a step back and recognize he's successful and powerful. At doing what? At uplifting the stories and voices of those who do not have power. Like, <laughs> yeah. What wow. the hell are we doing as a liberal culture? Like, with the person who is like one of the most successful folks at lifting up, right? And highlighting stories in which people are powerless and oppressed. That's that, that's what he's been su successful at. His success now 
somehow disqualifies him from doing the work. Like how corrupt a notion that is. Like, like what? It's, yeah, it's sort of this worry that like it's incredibly the far left is going to cannibalize the left. What it 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 is, and it does, and it will continue to. He's not doing. He's not. He's not making a Bertrand Russell piece. Like he's not. Kind of, he, this is not his. Why I'm not a Christian anymore. Book. This is the way it was often received by folks. Was like this is his departure. This is his farewell love letter. I don't think David ever said like here's my farewell love letter to 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 Christ and Christianity and to God, etc. He was just, here's my here's my here's where I'm at. This is my story. This, so I think these are this this it's the same thing he's always done. He did it with Pedro. He's done with the Solar Project. He's doing he's doing now with the Phoenix record, which I don't know if you've picked up. It's a great record. <clears throat> it's he the thing that makes him excellent as a songwriter is is taking the, what's happening with him internal internally, creating like a, a public record of it that is poetic, that's accessible, that's emotive, that that is, that that is moving. And actually stirs that same conversation in you. I don't think he's he's. I don't think he's creating propaganda. Not that propaganda is always bad. I don't think he's. I don't think he was creating a, like an anti-Christian or anti-religious tract. He was saying this is these are the arguments in my mind. Like it's not so much a problem with celebrity as it is like the consumption of and my participation in celebrity. Like how seriously, how seriously do I take? How personally do I take the? Like the public creation of someone I don't know. The model of Christ was, I mean, it's a really small group of people who he spent time with. He had 12, you know, he had 12 people over the course of three years. Like that was the investment. So maybe that's the kind of stuff you can really internalize is, is someone who's like up in your shit on the regular for like over the course of like a lot, a lot of time. And outside of that, feel 100% free to say, I'm a, I'm with like 10 or 15% of this and 80% of it I think is like meh. If this sounds interesting to you, patreon.com slash Dan Coke. There's a link in the show notes. Back to my conversation with Kyle. In the book, I'm going to reverse the order. In the book, you go through a list of like 10 things that changed for you. Uh, as as this shift started to happen. And then you list four things that did not change for you. But I'm going to flip them. Let's start with the big stuff that has not changed. And we're going to go through, you know, 12 to 15 of these items. I'm not going to let us spend more than like three minutes on each one. We're, you know, this is a 30,000 yeah. foot view. But I want to give people a sense of what it means, what your progressive Christianity actually looks like with respect to a bunch of sort of central and less than central doctrines and claims. So, starting with the stuff that hasn't changed, God as a Trinity. Why? Why do you? Why has the slippery slope not led to getting rid of Trinitarian theology? There, there is there's a, a kind of theological beauty to the plurality within the Godhead that has a lot of profound, not just theological but social and political and and so on uh, implications. That's one thing. Um, now, that's not necessarily if it's kind of a pragmatic argument or an aesthetic argument. But if you just sort of start at the person of Jesus and then ask yourself whether you continue to believe or affirm the divinity of Christ, all right, uh, you know, then, well, then the next step would be, do I continue to affirm the divinity of the spirit and sort of some kind of personality of the spirit? 
Um, and as I kind of go through the the materials, as we did with the Gospel of Matthew recently, we wrote a kind of chapter on the Holy Spirit in Matthew, and kind of came out like, yeah, you know, that the Spirit has a personality. The Spirit has a a, a real a, agential presence in the narrative and the text, and it's a partnership kind of approach to Jesus. And so, it, it you working backwards. The logic of the Trinity, I have no real reason to reject or critique. Yeah, one other aesthetic, not an argument, but maybe a feature of Trinitarian thinking is that a lot of Christian mystics and very prayerful writers find ground for the love that they experience between themselves and God grounded in the love of the persons of the Trinity for each other. I don't know if you have anything to say about that. Yeah, I know. I think that that does get get to the heart of that aesthetic kind of approach that Catherine Lacuna has this beautiful book, God for Us. And that's sort of at the core of that, too, is that kind of mystical appreciation for the way these these persons share life together. And it's really a beautiful picture of you know the love of God operative within God, the, the persons of God for God's you know, for each other, one another within the Godhead and that being sort of the foundation, that, that relational love for then God's love for us and then human love as a model. It's, it's, it's pretty profound. So then moving down more specifically into Jesus, you continue to affirm Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. Just give us a couple minutes on that. I realize we're going through like I'm literally asking you to give us a systematic theology in three, yeah. three minute chunks, but just give us a bird's eye view. You know, I'll just write my systematic theology after this interview. So thank you for that. Or um, I'll just you just do it live, and I'll just uh, be your stenographer. Transcribe it. Yeah, we could do that. The person of Christ presented in the narratives of the Gospels, presented as well in a different way or different through a different frame in Paul. It makes sense that Jesus's identity would be equal in worth or equal in in the sense that Jesus participates in the divine identity. The fact that the early church so quickly picks up on that and sort of runs with it, to me, is yet another, I don't know, evidence that they were following the right trail. If Jesus is the the icon or the image of the invisible God, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, Ephesians 1, you know, there's these great kind of first chapter locations that spell out the this sort of identity of the Christ, the it's Messiah. Like the, the lead single of each of those letters is like Jesus is the icon of God. Yeah, right. And, and even John 1, you know. The, right, the logos, yeah. The word. The yeah. word. It, it, it's a different kind of picture than, oh, hey. I've got a message for you about God, and I want to tell you what that message is. Now, he, Jesus did have some messages about God, but there's more to it in the sense that he actually was seen to to represent the essence of God in his very self and life and teachings and action as the embodiment of Yahweh in the world. And that embodiment gets him killed, and the... Claims of the New Test, the claim of the New Testament is that he was raised from the dead. Now, what most people would think that a progressive or liberal Christian would end up saying is, well, miracles don't happen. There's no resurrection. But you do affirm the resurrection. So can you talk a little bit about why you do? Yeah, I affirm the resurrection. Um, I 
for one thing, I'm very influenced by uh, Jürgen Moltmann and Moltmann's theology, which really is a, a theology that is oriented around the future that God has in store, the good future, the coming of God in the world. And that is the ground of our hope then. And so for me, a lot of the reason you might say that I am still a Christian is the the depth to which Christianity offers a kind of hope in the midst of despair and hope in the midst of injustice and that this life is not the end, that there is a future reality. And the resurrection of Christ, if it is only symbolic, if it is only meant to kind of stir up a sense of love for the beauty of the present world and there's there's not really, I think, a lot of teeth, if you will. And what's hopeful to me, and I write about this at the end of the book, is when my mom was dying of Alzheimer's and her brain was deteriorating and, and at, at, toward the end had nearly, you know, completely taken away her capacity for relational engagement, reflection, conversation, memory or anything, was to see, when you see the body deteriorate like that, the, the story of the embodied resurrection of the Messiah, who is the embodiment of Yahweh for us, now restored to life, not just spiritually or metaphorically or symbolically, but actually in an embodied way. And I, N.T. Wright writes a lot about this, right? That the Jewish hope for life and the Jewish understanding of life is always an embodied life. The Hebrew understanding of life is an embodied life. And Jesus would have had that understanding that life is always embodied. Paul would have had that understanding. Life is always embodied. And that, to me, is just where the hope lies is for, for thinking of kind of the future is that the present injustices are restored and healed in the shape of and the form of a resurrected physical life. So now we're going to go through some of these specific items that have changed for you in this journey. And, you know, just, I'd love just a couple minutes on each, uh, you know, just an explanation or maybe a, a way that this ties in with the kind of hope that you, that we were just talking about. You know, I actually skipped redemption through Christ of the cosmos because you kind of combined that with the resurrection. The resurrection yeah. is, uh, some people say the down payment, right? The down payment on ultimate, uh, redemption of the universe. But so skipping some of these changes, evolution as the way that God created the world and people. Say a little bit about that. Yeah. So if you reach back behind, feel your tailbone there. You know, we've got all these evidences for, for evolution. I taught a theology and science class, like read a lot of stuff. You pretty much have to accept, I think, to be a thinking intellectually responsible person that the story of evolution, the, the, the so-called theory, the theory of evolution, is the best story we have for understanding the how. Which isn't to say that the average person, like everyone, is required to do that kind of a reading. But if you're going to be teaching about it, for instance, and you look at it seriously, there is a conclusion that is pretty inescapable. Yes, absolutely. Moving on, a more ecumenical view of the church Ecumenical being the entire body of Christ, right? All, all the branches and the variety. How has that changed for you? Yeah, it kind of goes back to you know the my Wheaton days, but just appreciating and understanding the diversity of 
of practices, perspectives, liturgies, and how all of that kind of comes together to form the people of God. To me, it's, it's really about the people of God. It's less about the church as a single entity or institution. I think that's very gospel-like, you know, that, that the ecclesia is this people of God gathered around the story of Jesus and attempting to follow him. And whatever shape that looks like, doctrinally or, or otherwise, that so matters So I was going to say, of course, anybody can be ecumenical, even if they're conservative. But what you're saying is that it's given you some freedom amongst doctrinal and theological difference to still uh, have your arms wrapped around them, something like that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That It's, it's a centered set, not a bounded set. You know, and, and it's, yeah. Can uh, you describe that? I, I love that analogy, but a lot of people might not be uh, might not be familiar with that centered versus bounded set. What does that mean? Yeah. So if you want to sharply de- define who's in, who's out of a particular set or a particular community, or here are the Christians, here are the non Christians, you you would create a bounded set. You would clearly define the edges uh, that yeah. You that draw a line around it. Here's yeah, the boundary. Yeah. yeah. But if if you don't want to do that, you want to do a centered set then you're going to put kind of the focal point at the middle, at the center, and then you're going to draw arrows going in or out to sort of say who's closer, who's further away. or So you can still have a conversation yeah. about the identity of everyone sort of within the, uh, the whole, but it's less rigid, less defined by exterior or sort of borderline territory. Yeah, it's like is, is that tradition – turn toward Jesus with their eyes towards Jesus, even if we think that they're wrong about a bunch of stuff. Yes. Good. Well put. Here's a simple one that we can definitely do in two to three minutes. Biblical inerrancy, uh, <laughs> by which let's just say, because people have different definitions, let's just say for the sake of this conversation, biblical inerrancy is the view that the Bible contains no substantive errors of any sort of doctrine or, you know, there are people who may be inerrantists but say it's not making scientific claims. But let's say if Paul believes something theologically, I have to believe it. That's inerrancy. Yeah, and I think you've given a very generous or loose definition of inerrancy. On purpose, you know? I try to yeah, respect yeah. my uh, my interlocutors. Because that was starting to sound more like infallibility to me because – Well, good. Maybe it, distinguish between the two for us. So in the evangelical, the conservative evangelical world that I at one point knew very well, inerrancy was, by and large, would include history, science, any any of these any sort claim. of yeah. any claims. Now, there were always hedges. There were always ways of saying, yeah, but there are approximations or, you know, there are accommodations that are going to show up here or there. Um, Or manuscript discrepancies, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And of course they didn't, we don't have the original manuscripts, which those are the ones that are really inerrant. And so the whole thing started to feel very convoluted because if you don't have the original manuscripts and you're saying Mm -hmm. those are inerrant, then you don't actually have an inerrant Bible. Right. Um, So that kind of ends up in a, a, a position of infallibility, which is maybe closer to what I was saying, which is the attitudes and beliefs of the biblical writers are free from error and we need to share those attitudes and beliefs or something like that. Um, yeah. And that the intentions you might say, well, you might say at one level, the intentions of God in using these texts to communicate right. whatever God wants to communicate and that God infallibly communicates, not that we infallibly receive the communication, but that the, that from God's part, the communication is infallible. 
but there, there is also a uh, definition of inerrancy called intentional inerrancy, which says that whatever the authors, the, the human authors of the Bible intended to communicate, if, for example, they intended to tell a, a fictional story, you know, that the author of Jonah intended right, right. to tell a parable or whatever that wasn't true. Well, then it's not an error because that was his intent all along. Right. So that's it, basically the, controlling for genre, right? In yeah, particular yeah. biblical text. Precisely. In other words, the genre shapes the message. You're not looking for eternal propositional truths in mm-hmm. the Psalms. Yeah. So where or even have you, the Proverbs. So where have yeah. you landed on this question? Because we could we could explain inerrancy all day long, but what's it done for? You? What's this? leftward move done for you on that issue? So I've given up inerrancy. I gave it up a number of years ago. I, I would have held, I held to an intentional inerrancy position while I was in an evangelical context. But now I've, I've really come to realize that it, there's just no, there's no real legitimate way to affirm inerrancy without making so many qualifications that you end up with something more like infallibility. You might as well just go with infallibility or inspiration. I just basically say the Bible is inspired, and I believe it's the inspired word of God, or at least a form of the inspired word of God, that is our kind of original sacred text that we should respect and engage, and but that we can now and should now go beyond the Bible. We use the the resources of the Bible, the themes of the Bible, the, the 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 articulation of justice against injustice and care for the marginalized, or whatever the it might internal be. narrative of the Bible as it goes you, through time. Exactly, yeah. you follow that narrative, that thread, but it goes out beyond the Bible itself into our world, and that gives us the freedom again to go back and kind of well think critically about that Bible in its context as we attempt to live out its intended message in the present. Okay, I'm going to skip your view of Christ's atonement for now because one of Ben's questions is about how theories of atonement might change with a progressive view. So we're going to hold on to that one. Okay. But you do mention in your book that the meaning of salvation has changed for you. How has that changed? What what was it before and how would you describe it now? Yeah, I'd say before I probably had a narrow and of course, these two questions are related, but a sort of narrow sense that salvation is about kind of getting your eternal security right. Um, going to heaven instead of hell, accepting Jesus in your heart, getting uh, forgiven of your sins so that God can accept you into his life and into heaven for eternity. And that was really sort of salvation. Of course, when you look at the Bible's many instances of the term or related terms of salvation it's very diverse and very often it's really about being saved from something here on earth you know some threat um, to your existence to your life but i do think there's a sense in which salvation can encompass both kind of present you know god's protection and deliverance from present threats and harms whether physical or psychological emotional spiritual or and also encompass kind of salvation from death. It's it's a more all-encompassing framework of what salvation is, I think. The coming of God and the work of Christ being a sort of all-encompassing uh, victory, the victory of Christ over death and evil. Which leads to my next item, which is the scope of God's saving grace, or another way you might say it is the scope of Christ's atoning work. 
How has that changed for you? For me, the scope of the work of Christ is universal in that it will eventually accomplish its work in totality so that God will get what God wants. And what does God want? God wants that all desires that all shall be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And both Paul say that and Peter says that. Sorry about the banging. I was preaching. Yeah, it's the three times that you've hit the table have been the times where I could tell you're really into it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So uh, Christian universalism for me, during my, uh, my theological studies as a student, this is something you would never want to become because this is kind of the ultimate heresy. The, the, uh, I don't know the ultimate heresy, but undermining the work of Christ somehow by expanding its scope. It's really an unusual kind of argument when you think about it. Because why would it why would expanding the scope of the effectiveness of Christ's work to everyone, all creation, how does that limit it or yeah. constrain it? Well we might but we might delineate between two kinds of pushback to universalism. One is a pushback that says that's kind of motivated by kind of dark psychological forces of tribalism and being in and out. And another is is a, a view of scripture that that says, look, Jesus really seems to believe in a judgment. I, I'm not free to, I'm not free to deny that. It's right there in the text, and then you'd have to have a longer conversation about what to do with the text, right? That's right. And what is Jesus doing when he's providing these warnings? What does he mean by right. hell or right. Gehenna or you yeah? Know, and, so oh, you there's can, a place called that. So yeah, you can you can have that in in uh you can have that conversation in good faith, or you can kind of just gutturally and kind of instinctually lash out at each other. Uh, we've <laughs> got four more items on this list of stuff that's changed for you. Sexual inclusion. Your views on sexual inclusion have changed. Um, how did this move change that for you? There's a phrase called the re- redemptive trajectory hermeneutic. That's it. This was a a phrase that I encountered in a book by a guy named something, something Richard Weber. And he applies this way of interpreting scripture to the issue of slavery and the issue of women in ministry. And he says, look, there's this trajectory in scripture leads toward implies a fuller hermeneutic or a fuller ethic of complete egalitarianism. And of course, of abolition of slavery to, to the, the complete affirmation of the full humanity of all, all people and uh, the, the wrongness of enslaving another, taking ownership of another. But there is no such trajectory when it comes to, he, he argues, homosexuality. Um, yeah, the name of the book is uh, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals or something like that. That's right. I've that's almost, every, almost every charitable but more conservative adult I know has recommended this book to me. <laughs> yeah. Frankly, had some students also in seminary who uh, identified as gay, were very thoughtful, intellectually sophisticated Christians, and they would ask questions like, "Well, why does the traject why is there this trajectory here for women and slaves, but and it, it somehow just stops short on the sexuality question that it's not even open for debate." When in fact you've only got five to seven texts anyway in the entire entirety of scripture that speak or even may speak to the issue, and we've got all these contextual dimensions to it, which we should acknowledge, which is that whatever homosexuality was 
in its reference in Paul or Leviticus would have been very different from kind of how we know of it today. And obviously it's various manifestations. But if you think about the contextual difference, the, the gap divide across time, that's one of the, the prompts for us doing this kind of critical uh, analysis of these texts and saying, well, divorce meant this then, or marriage meant this then, um, but it probably doesn't have the same meaning for us today. Homosexuality meant this then, probably to Paul or whatever, probably didn't have, doesn't have the same meaning when you carry it over. And uh, same thing with, you know, the issue of women and ministry. Women were considered inferior to men, varieties of women. They aren't now. So the river, again, we're back to the river, but that, that thinking of that through kind of really in the context of relationships and friendships with real people who embody these perspectives, it's like, I, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to move on, you know? You say that the emphasis on converting others changed for you. That's obviously a, a big part of evangelicalism is the sharing of the gospel. It's what evangelicals are named after. So how did this change for you? And, and this is something that people worry about. People worry when they consider more progressive views that they will lose the motivation to share the gospel. The idea being that if you lose that motivation, then what the hell are we doing here? Yeah. And, and of course, this question is related to the one about the scope of God's grace for salvation. Exactly. Uh, you know, if God's going to save everybody, why don't we just go home and enjoy life? It, you know, you have to then I think step back and say, well, what do we mean by the gospel? What is this good news? What is this one Gellion that we're, that Jesus preached? Okay, what did, what did Jesus say was the gospel? And I asked this question, by the way, to a liberation theologian once. Yeah, what is the gospel? And he said, Luke 4. Okay, so I go to my Bible and I look up Luke 4. And of course, this is where Jesus stands up in the synagogue and reads from the scroll of Isaiah and, and you know, I've come to bring good news, to proclaim good news to the captive and the prisoner and the, the broken, sick, and so forth. I'm very much paraphrasing, but that message of real-life radical transformation and hope, we have to think of the gospel in that context. We also have to think of the gospel more broadly as the good news of the story that God has come, Manuel has come in the person of Jesus. Yeah. And it's a whole, it's a whole picture. It's a holistic story, not just a, a, a message of eternal life. If you do this thing, say yeah. this prayer, whatever. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just talking with a friend because in Luke, you know, Jesus sends out the disciples to share the gospel, but he's still alive. So yeah. there is certainly a gospel that the church comes to understand after Christ's resurrection of like, oh. Something else went on went on here, not just the uh, redemption for the poor and whatnot, um, yeah. but like what were they preaching if it wasn't the thing that Jesus stood up in the synagogue to say? Right. right? Yeah, that's a great point. The first uh, missionaries basically didn't had a still fully alive Jesus of Nazareth, and they yeah. were already preaching the gospel or some version of the gospel. Well, that leads into my last item here, which is we've already talked about why you uh, felt the need to sort of decenter white male European theological influence. And you just sort of hinted at liberation, uh, feminist, womanist, uh, or theologies of disability. Say a little bit about those other views and 
how your regard for them has changed and what what they have convinced you of that you weren't convinced of before? At a, a glance, big picture, what all of these theologies provide someone is a, a vantage point, a perspective that enables a corrective or a exposing of blind spots. So to read, say, the Gospels through the lens of a feminist perspective or a womanist perspective or disability theology perspective, you can really see things that you weren't able to see from your own limited, you know, the blind spots that you had. So you think about the the Canaanite woman who, or Syrophoenician, I forget which, but, you know, when Jesus uh, basically compares her to a dog and she corrects his understanding, God's mission, uh, and the expansiveness of God's mission to incorporate the Gentiles, not just the Jews. So there is this kind of insistence, right, uh, and assertiveness that she brings to her relationship to Jesus that is not often preached in a kind of white male context or or Mary's Magnificat and Luke, you know, is this story that's often spoken of by liberation theologians, feminists, as a picture of a woman who takes an initiative and is sort of assertive in God's salvation history. And um, it's not the story of the docile, willing, submissive Mother Mary that most of the tradition kind of gives us. So it's it's addressing the blind spots and seeing God and, and reading the text through lenses that we otherwise wouldn't have available. I've got two more questions for you, and then we are going to get into the particular questions that Ben raised in his interview. So the first of these is, why do more conservative Christians worry about becoming more progressive? Why do they fear it? I know I certainly did fear it. I certainly worried about it. And sometimes I still do, but there were times where I... There are times where I was more worried about becoming a liberal Christian than not being a Christian anymore in some bizarre, you know, evangelical fear thing. What's that about? Yeah, I, I wonder how much, yeah, how much of this is a fear, a psychological fear of feeling like a, like you have betrayed something that is uh, very important to you. You were given a gift or a task and you were, you were supposed to hold on to that and to preserve it and protect it at all costs. And now you're one of those people that you were warned about, or you could become one of those people that you're, you're being warned about. And so how are you going to, are you going to be able to look at yourself in the mirror if, if you have betrayed the very gospel that has brought you life? So we're, I think really given those of us who grow up in these more conservative contexts, this kind of whether explicit or implied message that to, to go down that path very far would make you a Judas, basically a kind of betrayer of the truth. And therefore you might lose your salvation. You might cause others to, to stumble and lose their salvation. You know, and, and I so, always worry about teachers will be judged more harshly. And then am I a false teacher? And even if it seems right to me and I'm praying about it, but if it, but if what if I'm wrong, then I'm judged more harshly. That stuff gets in there, man. It doesn't okay. just leave. Yes, that's right. 
And then there's also the family dynamics or relationship dynamics. You know, you kind of, your life is going a certain direction. People expect you to say certain things and believe certain things. And all of a sudden, you know, you've done, you're, you've written a book denying the virginal conception and you get notes from family members or whatever who are concerned for your salvation. You know, so these are things that they're not trivial because religion is such, it's so integrated into the fabric of our lives. Right. Okay. Last question before we move on to Ben, for you, how much of this distinction between progressive and traditional Christianity comes down to giving ourselves permission to question the Bible? I mean, is that the, is that the basic divide between the two camps? I tend to think that's really the core of it. Yeah. That once you give yourself that permission to question this authoritative source, you have crossed the chasm. You've crossed the divide into progressive Christianity. I I really think that kind of puts a finger on it right there. And if we were to characterize the basic arguments of each side, the traditional argument would be, be really careful when you start picking and choosing what you like about the Bible. And then the progressive rejoinder is, we do it already, you do it too already, let's be honest about it and just do it well. Exactly. It seems to me that there's some truth to both of those views, though, because there is a kind of progressive Christianity that would go by that name that really is just a front for people who don't want to feel guilty. They grew up in Christianity. They want to do whatever the hell they want to do, but they want to be able to still call it Christianity to their family and to themselves to deceive themselves that they really are following God. Yeah, I I think that's probably true. Just like there are people further right you know, that are that have are no longer doing Christianity either. They're just doing sort of, you know, cultural conservatism and they want a divine label they can slap on it, but they're really just being hateful and bigoted, right? So it's yeah. it's sort of like where the conversation we're having is hopefully between people sort of more in the center of that continuum who are maybe disagreeing about how much freedom they have with the Bible. Yeah, and it is it is interesting if if at some point you realize that all of your theological and political beliefs or convictions basically line up to a to one agenda yeah. item uh, after item of one political platform or whatever or another totally. it does make you think like well wait a minute did i just sort of is it inevitable that i just slide into these that i slot into these categories it, it would feel more authentic if I if I had some genuine stark differences here or there. Like I've actually yeah. thought this through, and I know I don't agree with that. Um, yeah, I think that's where keeping ourselves in conversation with people, thoughtful people, intentionally to be in those conversations with people who don't share our perspectives or or the party line that we affiliate with, can maybe help us to steer clear of some of that. Um, just kind of straight up alignment. Yeah, I think – I mean I'm coming to a point – and this is less to do with this theological discussion and a bit more to do with social and political stuff where if there aren't people on your left and on your right, then I'm not interested in hearing from you because I just think the chances that you're correct are very, very low. And uh, it's got to be somewhere in the middle on most questions. Yeah. So we're going to have a little break and then we're going to address – the specific things that Ben mentioned in his uh, interview at the beginning of the episode. (music) 
I know there was already one ad for the Patreon in this episode, but we're now almost an hour and a half in, and my guess is you're resuming this episode on a day that you did not start it. Now, if you're going straight through, man, props to you. Uh, Way to be a serious listener, (laughs) a trekker. Uh, But yeah, you know, it's five bucks a month and you get two extra episodes. I really try to make it a thing that adds value. I love those patron only episodes because topically I'm, I'm free. I'm wide open. I can talk about anything with anybody. And I'd really like to know what you would like me to talk about and with whom or with whom. So you have permissionpod.com. Click become a patron. It's only five bucks and making this show is not free. Even besides my time, it is hundreds of dollars a month in editing fees and hosting and all of that stuff. I do love doing it and uh, I don't know how I could stop doing it. So I'm not saying pay me or else. I'm just saying, hey, be a part of it, you know? We got a Facebook discussion group. It's only open to patrons. I love being a part of that too. So consider it. You have permissionpod.com. Thank you. All right, Kyle, good to be back with you. Uh, a lot of these things that Ben mentioned, we really, we sort of did cover them. And uh, but we're just going to go through them one at a time and we'll just spend only a little time if we need to and and more time if we need to. So one concern that Ben has is that the Bible would become just one revelation among many. Is he right about that? Is that not a bad thing if he is or is that not how you see it? I think it's a valid concern. There is a perspective of within progressivism or liberalism, which basically would just sort of see the authority of the Bible as akin to a religious classic. That's not my position or perspective. I would say I do believe the Bible represents a kind of unique inspiration. And so affirm some kind of providential oversight, uh, if you will. There's something unique about the Bible, which affords it or enables it to be a vehicle of God's empowerment or a truth that emanates from it as it is read preached, prayed through, um, and it conveys to us through through the Gospels, particularly the Gospel, the, the message of of the story of Christ. So it's it's I'm I'm not worried about it being overtaken within the Christian framework, certainly uh, by something else. I'm more worried about how it is so often abused or misused from the other side of things. Which leads to the next question, which is about biblical authority. For Ben, there's a worry that like, look, the Bible tells us to do things. A lot of times we don't want to do them, but we need to do them because the Bible and God knows better than we do. So how do you, how do you get out of that question or problem? Yeah, it's actually very Kierkegaardian in a way, you know, that the Bible is this uh, speech of God with this, the force of a command and uh, commentary upon commentary only kind of serve to divert the directness of its uh, authority on us. I, I am I am sympathetic with the concern there in a sense. However, that perspective can so easily become a kind of heavy-handed authoritarianism that binds people up in these really terrible 
uh, guilt-ridden boxes. Uh, they just can't live up. Um, this is why Luther, I think, his emphasis on a theology of justification saved by grace alone, you know, felt free himself to dissect the Bible a little bit and to say, well, maybe James, uh, you know, not not really so good. Uh, maybe it doesn't belong in there. And to kind of create a kind of hierarchy within the Bible itself, uh, these texts are really profound and important for us. These, well, they have a place, but I can I could accept at some level his point, but at the same time say that we really, all of us have a canon within a canon. That is, we all have places in the Bible that have more force or more authority or more more persuasion on us than other places for whatever reasons. And I think it again is our job, our responsibility to be thoughtful about looking again at the entirety of scripture and saying, well, what is it in a disposition of spiritual openness? What is it that God wants to communicate today? Yeah. It strikes me that you might also just say it's a a bit of a circular argument. Um, If there's something God wants you to do, then you definitely need to do it. But the question we're asking is, to what extent can we just read the Bible and know what God wants us to do? And so to simply say, well, I don't want to question the Bible because then I won't do what God wants me to do is, is, is really to sort of kick the can down the road. Yeah. That's, that's, that's very much better said than I put it. So I never take out when uh, guests say that I always leave it in. Um, (laughs) Another, uh, this is a good one and this is a CS Lewis uh, issue and, and Ben repeated it. What about chronological snobbery? Why do we know better in a later time period than people knew in an earlier time period? Is that what we're doing? Uh, well, would he say the same thing about medicine? Would he prefer to go to a doctor that uh, lived centuries ago? Well, as yeah, hard so as that would be to do, you, really, you kind of uh, need a you need a a theory that says this stuff is is like science and medicine and, and other things like that. But you might argue that it's not like those things. It is, and it, it's true. It is not like those things in a sense. Um, and yet, to bracket out a religious text and say that it is epistemologically completely untouchable by these other things, science, cosmology, biology, sociology, whatever you name it, and and historical studies themselves, which gives us more and more insight into the original text, arguably, uh, as to how they were composed and arranged and so forth. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, there there certainly is like a medical journal aspect to that kind of scholarship. Another way you might think of it is like, now we know what happens when some women are allowed to go to seminary and then read the Bible and dissect it and discuss it theologically. And before, we did not know that. And that's not chronological snobbery. That's just that's just chronology. We just do have that information now. You can read an Elizabeth Johnson book. You didn't used to be able to. Right. That's right. Exactly right. And that's sort of like we did more studies with guinea pigs on this thing, you know, or whatever it is. We have that info. We didn't have it before. We have more insight. We have more experiences to draw from. Another one from Ben, wrestling with God to him seems to be okay. He sees all kinds of precedent in scripture, especially in the Old Testament. But for him, it seems to all be done within this framework of scripture is from God. So we're wrestling, but we really don't get to deny this stuff. It's it's kind of a variation on the theme here. Um, but in the Old Testament, I mean, was there even scripture that people were 
you know, these records of Jacob wrestling with God, I mean, there's no scripture yet. How do we think about that question of wrestling and, and we have some piece of authority? Yeah. And even of course the scriptures that Jesus had. Yeah. Or Paul mentions. Or or that, or that Paul mentions were not the new Testament. So they were wrestling with Hebrew scriptures and uh, commentaries of Hebrew scriptures or whatnot. So we're back again to this, this, real reticence to to criticize this sacred text because it is given this prominent place of authority as the voice of God, the speech of God. Ben probably doesn't say this, the you know, the dictates of God or the dictation of God. N.T. Wright somewhere says that the Bible's authority is a derivative authority. And I think that's a really helpful way to think about it. Like God is the real authority. Right. The Bible isn't the real authority. It's instrumental. It's a it's a mediated authority, but it's, it's secondary, and it's again time and place, the river, and everything else, and reflects the humanity, the context, uh, and the limitations of that derivation. So we can wrestle with that, and we can wrestle with God, but we can question that as we try to hear from God. Um, but in fact, some, even Kierkegaard, but Origen and others have said that there are errors in the Bible precisely so that, you know, Kierkegaard would suggest they were intended by God to be errors in the Bible. So we wouldn't trust in the Bible, wouldn't have faith in the Bible, we'd have faith in God. Interesting. It's the ultimate authority. Ben makes clear a worry that I think is pretty common that like, Look, if you stick with a traditional understanding of the Bible, a traditional theological understanding, you have like really good systematic kind of well thought out, um, robust, internally coherent understandings of scripture and of God. And if you go progressive or liberal, you're going to lose that robustness. Uh, you might get theology that is weaker or reactionary. Or that all it can do is proof text because maybe it hasn't had the time. It's not coming from a place of, of such rigor. What do you think about that? You know, even throughout the, the history of Christian thought, some of these major thinkers were doing a kind of progressive theology in their time, in their situation. They were thinking questions anew. I mean, Augustine did a lot of progressive theology. He actually constructed a theology of sin <laughs> with Ambrose's help that I happen to not agree with, but it was progressive because it was new. Yeah. There is a point of insight there that there is a need for uh, progressives to do real constructive theological engagement, but that's also in a way to ignore so much of the work that has been done. It just doesn't make it out into the, maybe the public sphere as much as the conservative stuff does. Yeah, there, there's definitely – some of that is um, social posturing. I mean if you read any sort of lay version understanding of like what the Catholic theologians of the middle 20th century were doing that laid the groundwork for Vatican II, a lot of that stuff is would be considered progressive and that stuff is very serious theology. I mean it's not – some of that is like gospel coalition types getting to sort of pose as – the true intellectuals, but it's not necessarily true to the, to the facts. Yeah. Um, here's another one that I think is really salient for a lot of people. There's a worry that, 
you become a progressive Christian because you let the, your emotions get the best of you rather than your reason. Um, mm. How do you respond to that? I guess my first response would be just to ask the simple question, why would that be a problem? Well, the, the reason to be a problem is that you don't use your emotion to read and understand the Bible. You use your reason to do that and to, to read the revelation of God, understand it, and apply it to your life. If you start going by emotion, then you're going by some secondary authority. I'm just thinking of Hebrew Bible and the passions that God is often displayed as having kind of emotion or the emotion that Jesus yeah. is, explain, is portrayed as having in yeah. the Gospels too, whether it's anger or compassion or weeping or, you know, it, it strikes me as a very modernistic assumption that, well, emotion bad, reason good. And I'm not sure that we can't have kind of both together. And then if we think of the sources of theology again, and if experience is allowed to be one of those categories, alongside of reason or rationality, critical thinking, historical investigation, emotionality is is a real profound point of connection and connectedness. That why, why would compassion, for example, for others not be something that you would think about when you read the Gospels. Jesus talks about the least of these. Why should I not, my mind or my heart, not go to the migrant? Why why shouldn't some kind of feeling be inserted there in that engagement? So now this is one I said we were going to wait on till later, where we're going to hear how your mind has changed on atonement theories, how how exactly Christ's death and resurrection uh, pays for sin or washes away sin. Ben's worry is that with progressive theology, the nature of the cross, the true nature of the cross gets sort of watered down or tossed out in terms of the cross really accomplished something, or maybe the cross and and the empty tomb. Uh, And then it might just become some sort of example of love, uh, like other, like Gandhi and like MLK and whatever. So can, I think, I see those as very related. Can you sort of answer his question by, by answering how your thoughts on that have changed? I'm thinking of, I think it was Joel Green who used the phrase kaleidoscopic theory of the atonement. Hmm. Rather than choosing any one single model of the atonement, why not embrace the totality of the metaphors of scripture, gospels, for the, the myriad ways in which the passion of Christ and not just the death of the cross and the resurrection, but the whole life of Christ kind of gets taken up into this big picture of what Christ brings to the world and brings to us as a gift. But if you take the Christus Victor model, Christ as victorious over sin, death, yeah. evil, powers, principalities, and you wed that model to one of the newer kind of emerging models of the atonement, which is a, a, a final scapegoat kind of model of the atonement where the the death of christ the sacrifice of christ really means or should mean that the the need or the sort of the bloodlust or the need for humans to sacrifice each other to scapegoat each other is obliterated because christ took that took on that role if he took on the evils and the powers of darkness through this kind of scapegoat mechanism and then exposes it from within, then the structures and the powers and principalities should be nullified in their force. Uh, 
Of course, the problem with that is you look at the world and go, well, so when did that happen then? Right, <laughs> I mean, right. So it, it feels more aspirational than like effectual. Right, yeah. But at the same time, it's a, it's a could at least be, I think, a message that's applied to us in terms of the, what is the role of the church? The role of the church should be at least in part to share this message that there is no need for us any more scapegoating. There is no need for any more kind of violent action toward each other, that, that the real life lived should be a life of love and of gratitude. Yeah, the Orthodox theologian Callistos Ware, you know, he, he gives a talk. He, he gives like seven different atonement theories. And then he says, which one do the Orthodox believe? Yes. Uh, All seven. Yeah. It's a mystery. And these are seven ways of looking at it. And uh, none of them are subordinate to each other. Okay, just a few left, Kyle. This is a long episode, but uh, it's just so good and so dense. We're going we're gonna to talk about the slippery slope here, but not slippery slope as slippery slope. It's more for Ben, and I, I think there's really something here. Lo and behold, when you start going down this road, you end up with all of these views that don't have any friction with popular culture. Now you can watch Will and Grace and not feel guilty about laughing, uh, you know, at the gay jokes or, you know, not yeah. feel guilty about accepting your gay friend. Now you can um, – maybe people sometimes they change their views on abortion and life issues and, you know, like lo and behold, now none of your non-Christian friends are mad at you anymore. And isn't that just a little bit convenient? Yeah, I've heard that critique before actually – when I was in an evangelical context and yeah, there was a suggestion that, you know, all, all you progressives really want is to have no conflict with culture in the world and just to be able to watch whatever TV show you want and not feel guilty about it. Yeah. Watch modern family and be able to laugh at all, all of the jokes. Right. Um, would be maybe a contemporary version of that. Uh, Will and Grace is back, Kyle. That is a contemporary. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's back <laughs> I in the been air. Paying attention. But go ahead. Thank you for that pop culture correction. There's a reverse comeback argument, which maybe feels uh, cheap. It's like, well, maybe all you conservatives want is just to be comfortable in your own conservative silo and not have to engage the bigger, broader world with a heart of openness and compassion and love. And, you know, you actually enjoy buttressing yourselves in your fundamentalist framework or, or right. world where it's us versus them. And yeah. And to be so, fair, Ben actually did. I meant to include this as I asked the question, he called out fundamentalists for doing the yeah, same okay. thing on the right that he sees a lot of progressives do on the left. And I, I really think that, you know, I've done all this work with my other podcast, Depolarize, and I just think there's, this is where I see the crossover. I just think that I don't want to answer the question for you, but this whole caving into culture, you know, we listen to the Bible, they cave to culture is right. such a hollow. There are people who cave to culture, who cave to every kind of culture. So there's a migrant fearing, isolationist, conservative culture that a lot of Christians cave to. Yep. There is a no consequences for anyone, eggshell, I'm never going to step on anyone's toes culture that a lot of liberal Christians cave to. Any culture you can think of, there are some Christians that cave to it, and then there are some Christians who don't. And I think for the goal, I'm kind of soapboxing here, is to be in the somewhere in the middle where you're at least aware of the cultural pressures around you. Some of them you surely agree with them. Some of them you don't agree 
But to say that one group just has the Bible and uh, other groups just have culture, that seems false. I think that's that's also very well said. And if we wanted to take a do a, a survey of how how does Jesus relate to culture? Is he caving to culture when he's hanging out with tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners? You know, that's a technical term for outcasts, those that society would have not considered right. in, in that context a kind of conservative religious society would have not considered worthy of being kind of elevated to the position that Jesus seemed to be elevating them by his interactions. And who are the ones that Jesus most vociferously kind of goes after? It's the religious conservatives. It's the teachers of the law and the upholders of the moral uh, standards. And not to say that Jesus didn't also have allegiance to and adherence to kind of Torah standards, but at the same time, his modeling of relationships to culture and to the world, I think, looks much more, if we're going to go one way or the other, it's much more in the direction of what kind of Ben was, was sort of saying is the, the liberal progressive tendency. It's certainly not, I would argue, the kind of fundamentalist tendency toward Islamophobia or um, yeah. you know, fear of, of the migrant impurifying our pure society and that sort of thing. Yeah, and you know, Jesus even critiques like common family values sort of stuff about family mattering a lot and well, who are my mothers and my brothers and my sisters, those who do the will of God. I mean, there's there's yeah. there's streams of like even just kind of like very radical social stuff in Jesus. Not not that we should just take that whole cloth necessarily, but yeah. just to acknowledge that he's pushing back against a lot of different cultures. There is a worry for Ben that God is love, but God is also light. God is holy. And holiness would seem to be an objective trait, or holiness would lead to sort lead to sort of like absolute morality in God that would necessarily conflict with various points of human culture in our our time-bound conclusions about what appears to us to be loving, what appears to us to be just, or whatever. And so aren't we better off? just reading scripture carefully and going with that then comparing it against what seems now to us to be just knowing that our minds might change yeah i guess there are a lot of assumptions baked into that if we affirm the holiness and justice and otherness of god we also then at the same time are bound to this kind of posturing toward the scriptures as the very word of god equated to the holiness of God, to the mind of God. Right. It's kind of the same circular argument we talked about earlier. It's maybe where you say, look, yeah, you're right, but but the authority is God, and whatever God wants you to do, you should do. But the, the question here is exactly how does the Bible fit into that? And so to use this as an argument to take the Bible a certain way would be circular. Exactly. One last question from Ben, and I think this is maybe the most common one, and we've sort of covered it, but I just want to get it straight on. I think the most common thing that conservatives will say or think about progressives is they take what they like and they leave what they don't like. Uh, And once they figure out what God must be like, then they'll figure out a way to read the Bible. The knee-jerk response is, really? Like, conservatives don't do that too? They don't read Matthew 25 and kind of skip over that. This is, you know, the sheep and the goats and whatsoever you've done to one of the least of these, my brothers, mm-hmm. you've done it to me. And and not that they would disagree with that, conservatives, but 
this is, you know, Dwight Hopkins, the African-American liberation theologian, says Matthew 25 is the clearest passage in terms of outlining the criterion for eternal judgment in all yeah. of Scripture. And it's if you clothed the naked, if you fed the hungry. And, and it's not a salvation by grace alone text. It's not a text about justification by faith. It, it really is this kind of laying out of how it is that we're to live. And I don't hear a lot of conservatives preaching that literally. You know, I, I, I hear a lot of kind of, in a sense, spiritualizing of that passage. And then there are a lot of different ways to approach yeah. aspects of that passage in terms of exegesis. But um, I, I would just want to push back and say, I don't agree on the face of it that conservatives consistently and thoroughly read and interpret the Bible literally think that and that they don't also pick and choose and have their own kind right. of canon within a canon. If there's a text in the Bible that does not lend itself to a kind of life-giving approach and it's dehumanizing rather than humanizing, think of all the passages in the Old Testament that seem to condone uh, genocide on the basis of religious belief, Know, kill all the Midianites, uh, Moses, um, and don't spare right. any of them, by the way. Yeah. The advantage of the progressive is to be able to say, like you conservatives, we do pick and choose, but we pick and choose on the basis of principles that we've decided beforehand are consistent with the very the mind and the heart of God as we see it throughout Scripture and as we see it lived out into the present. Man, here I was thinking, I don't maybe don't need to ask that last question. So glad I did. Um, this is, uh, the final thing that Ben told me is he said, look, I think I have a lot to learn from progressives. He's a humble guy. What do progressives have to learn from traditional Christians? That, that question makes me think about Jonathan Haidt's work and I'm sure you're familiar with it. But oh yeah. The, I preach it. Psychologist. Yeah. A sense of the importance of developing or preserving a sort of moral fabric for yeah. society. Yeah. That it is important that we reflect on our traditions and that we respect our traditions and all of their variety uh, and differences, but to not just sort of hurl headlong into the future without attending to not just present contextual circumstance, but the, the formation of our lives in the present from the past. Kyle, this was a marathon. We've been talking for over two hours. Thank you so much for your time. And, uh, yeah. You're welcome. It was a lot of fun. Now I've got my systematic theology outlined all, already. So <laughs> yeah. Appreciate We've got that. the notes down. You could start on the draft. All right, man. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Dan. Even though this music sounds like the end of a movie or the end of summer camp, we're not done. We're still going to go back to Ben and hear what Ben thought of my conversation with Kyle. Remember, Ben is from the beginning of the episode about an hour and 45 minutes ago. He's the guy who is not a hardline conservative, but had some issues with progressive theology. And we brought a lot of those up with Kyle. Here's my conversation with Ben. 
So I'm back here with Ben Keeney. We are speaking in sort of hushed voices because of a going to sleep baby in little the baby. other room. Yeah. A little baby. And so the quietness of, of our voices will disguise our rage <laughs> at Kyle's apostasy. Our, yes. Our, yeah. <laughs> no. It's heretical rage. But Ben, uh, very grateful. Um, I thought we had a really great initial interview and I thought that Kyle did a pretty good job at addressing a lot of the stuff that you brought up plus uh, another hour plus of other things. Right. Long one. Okay. So you wrote some notes down. Let's just go through the, the stuff that you're, that you thought as you listened back. Okay. I'm going to start with what I liked. I really liked the centered set. Centered versus bounded set. Yeah. Super great. good. Yeah. I'm still kind of wrestling with that. Cause I, like at some point you still have to agree on the right. center. And so to some hmm. degree, the center has to be bounded. That's interesting. A yeah. little bit. What are we agreeing that we are pointing toward? There's a little bit of a kick in the can down the road there situation. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And and I think I would personally draw the line. I don't know if a traditional Christian would. I feel like more and more evangelicalism is adding more to it, mm. like even politically. Yeah. And blah, 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 that. But I think any serious believer wouldn't do that. What would you say to the following two possible possibilities for defining the center? Jesus is Lord. That's number one. Yeah, that's a big one. Maybe not enough, but that's the whole, let's say that's the whole center. Or number two, uh, the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. No, I'm fine with Jesus is Lord. Oh, okay. And Jesus cool. is risen. Like yeah. the resurrection, God. Yeah. Probably Trinity. Um, so you, you'd be fine with there not being much in the center. But you do feel like we need to at least acknowledge and, and decide what's in the center. Right. But then yes. you like that idea if we have that. Yeah. Great. That's great. Something that I have been, that I really like that he said that I was in full agreement with was a holistic view of salvation. Mm, yeah. And uh, and maybe that's just on a personal journey of un, like when you look through the Gospels, Jesus, he says heaven a lot, but it's always kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven, yeah. And it's almost always, if not always, here and now. It's here and now. And it's never, ever what we think of, what my American brain thinks of when I think of heaven and going to heaven. Yeah, afterlife, yeah. This is the interesting thing. So I was wondering when when he talked about expanding the scope of salvation. And it's really interesting. And to be honest, it was a lot more compelling than I thought it would be for me because I feel like I've okay, some humility kind of did that before. But um, when you view salvation as holistic, which I think you have to if you read the Bible, then the weird sort of like street evangelism, saving people from hell emphasis fades away to what I think is a better motivation of sharing the love of God. Just this is great. Even practically, we do this all the time. This right. is this is great for me. I want you to experience it. If we might consider like what exactly is the good news? Is the good news exclusively or primarily that like Christ has saved you from hell? Or even if that is the good news, it could be part what, of it. It sure. could be part of it. What's the thing we ought to lead with in this right. life when we're talking to people? Right? There's there's also good news about this life. Yeah, Which I is that there you can imitate yeah. Christ, and that is wholeness. Yeah, and the yeah. Old Testament view is definitely a view of save me from my enemies, save me right. from right now. Are you going to deliver me now? It's not they're not worried about their eternal place, I guess. Which yeah, is, which is really interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, and so I was I was always wondering if I view so what I'm scared of if I start to view salvation as holistic. 
is there a point where I go too far and then it becomes to where, uh, this, to where I would ascribe to it, like a giant scope kind of universal, uh, salvation through Christ. I don't know. We'll see, but sorry, you're just to be clear here, (laughs) but that's where I went. You're worried about universal salvation. I'm worried. Yeah. I'm just, I'm excited and convicted about convinced maybe of the holistic holistic scope of salvation salvation no of just like of what it means for me like Ah, it means it it's more than i think um the broad christianity um not academic but what you just get everywhere is that sole purpose is to not go to hell Hmm. i think we would rather not go to hell than go to heaven Hmm. I, I think that's what we care about. I mean, I've, yeah, if and I believe... Personally, I yeah. have to say that's me. I would... Yeah. I, I'm much more concerned with checking the hell box off yeah. than I am checking the heaven box, box on. Assuming <laughs> that heaven and hell exist roughly as the way that they were described to me in my evangelical upbringing, I'm right. far more concerned about avoiding hell than going to heaven. Right. Like, I'd way rather be annihilated and, than go to hell. And that just seems like that yeah. starts a whole list of horrible motives yeah. and anxiety. That's that, a very good the very good set of questions that come when that, you realize that. Right. Yeah. And so I feel like there's a pattern or relationship between the two that's that's interesting. So there's me. something there. You, you haven't quite figured out exactly where it's leading, but you like the idea of you start with holistic salvation and hopefully you end up kind of questioning this fear of hell as a primary vote motivator. Right. And, and I think I've always, it's never, I grew up in a Southern Baptist pastor's kid. And like street evangelism just never, ever appealed to me. It never appealed to me either. (laughs) And I don't, I don't, maybe I'm not built that way. Maybe there's some fear of man and stuff like that. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but fear of man. I would think that this little term. (laughs) Sorry. But I would think that the fear. Hey, you know what, Ben? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. (laughs) Thanks. I just am ashamed to say it to this dude in boy shorts on the pier. I just feel like (laughs) explaining the Old Testament is not going to win him over. Okay, so what was less clear to you, or you didn't like, or you didn't agree with? One of the concerns was picking and choosing. This is like the biggest one, and I think that was the last one you ended with. Liberals pick and choose, conservatives don't, that kind of a thing. Yeah, except that except. I did not say conservatives That's true. Don't. You said conservatives do as well. Right. And you were trying to chart a middle course that well, didn't well, I'm, on yeah, either end. And, so, and, and I guess he wasn't presented with that. And so his reaction, which he said was was a knee jerk reaction. Was, yeah, I sort of did. I I kind of messed that one up. I remember I was like, and I should say that Ben said, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and he's all, and you don't. And I'm like, I didn't say I don't. I'm just saying it's not right. And I right. kind of, but by implication, he's saying we like we do, and it's fine because I, everyone does. Yeah, which I, I think, think that's not a good stance, maybe. What Kyle was responding to is the common conservative critique, which you did not level, oh, uh, which right, is right. that liberals pick and choose and conservatives don't. Oh, yeah. And so Just I total, sort of – I framed yeah. it that way because it's so common to get his right. response. That makes sense. And what I failed to do was include at the beginning Ben – now, Ben mentioned that he doesn't think that conservatives don't do this. He thinks that they do it also, but nonetheless, he's worried about the way in which liberals might do it, which I think is a very reasonable. That's worry. fair. Yeah. Yeah. I do have a question. If So if yeah. you view, it's easy to say, like, I believe the scriptures because the scripture says to believe in them. Obviously yeah. circular. Does it change it if it was 66 books written over like a couple, a few thousand years? 
Well, if you want to start saying something like the 66 books written over a couple thousand years have incredible internal consistency, right. right? Now that's a reason to believe them. Right. That's a reason to believe in inerrancy or something like that. Now I think what matters is how closely in or how far zoomed out do you have to be on that word consistency? Sure. In order to argue for inerrancy, I would argue you need quite a bit more consistency than you find. In order to argue for something like infallibility, the Bible will not let you down as you approach it for salvation. Then you can zoom out quite a bit, and then there is quite a bit of consistency. Right. And I you think, know what I'm saying? Uh, so I know Scripture says that it doesn't fail, like it sets its purpose out. Yeah. I, I'm not sure where it says it. there's no errors in it. I don't think it says that anywhere and in so, the Bible. No, Scripture is God-breathed, so usable for teaching. Right. That's what Paul says. And so I'm super fine with... Yeah. And I think I've been pretty close to the... I've described myself as like 51% inerrant <laughs> and 50, I like but I like, like that, if yeah. someone wants to fight me, I'll yeah. just be like, no, that's fine. It wouldn't be that hard. Yeah, yeah, And, yeah. The, and yeah. I think that um, I've thought that from even in my Bible college days when they're like, well, the originals aren't. Oh, that's the way out. And you're right? just like... Yeah. Okay, where are the originals? Well, we don't have them anymore. Have <laughs> well, how do you know? <laughs> so, you don't so know. You, you bring up a good point. So, if someone says, "Well, all Scripture is God breathed, therefore the Bible is all perfectly great," like that's a circular argument. Right. But if someone says, "Look at the Bible; it's amazing. It stood for millennia. It formed right. Western culture. It it is the basis of our judicial system." I mean, you can say a lot of things about the Bible that are accurate that increase your estimation of the Bible, increase right. my estimation of the Bible. If you're arguing for inerrancy, though, well, you're put, you're giving yourself such an incredibly high bar. It's insane. You basically have to take it on faith. I think I enjoy you know it, though. Saying? I think I enjoy hearing the guys try to do it. Well, okay. I mean, Which is, I'm not going to speak like, to your hey, enjoyment. That's a lot. Or lack of enjoyment. Good job, man. Um, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Okay. What else did you have an issue with or a question about? Honestly, um, the conservatives will do scholarship to find nuances of what they want to take out in the progressives do the exact same thing they hmm. they yeah. do scholarship to find nuances to be like this is why this isn't relevant well, and that's what kyle said whatever. and kyle said i agree with ben we both do it in kyle's mind the benefit of the progressive side is an admission that we do it and right. we're saying look this is the criteria oh, yeah. it is the kenosis of god it right. is the it is a cruciform hermeneutic you know reading the bible through the lens of the cross uh, through God's self-giving love, and we are admitting it, and we're telling you our terms, and right. we're not pretending that we're not doing it. Right. There's some, uh, that may not apply to everybody, but there's something to that. Yeah, there is the difference between, um, I was thinking about this, my parents who have a different political affiliation. <laughs> Read that how you want. <laughs> where I was thinking, like, maybe you're wrong, saying to them. Like, it was kind of a thought experiment yeah. of like, me being like, maybe you're wrong, and then being like, maybe you're wrong. Back to me, obviously, which sure, they could do, and I'd be like, could. maybe, but the difference is I'm willing to say maybe I'm wrong. Are you willing to say maybe you're wrong? Right. right. And I feel like that's the difference is a lot of, there can be skepticism that's just bent. It's not out to find truth. It's and, in, it's operating in bad faith. And there can yeah. be people who are like, wait, why does God breathed have to mean no errors? Right. And there's a, right. there's a big difference there. Uh, yeah, and of course there's people on the political left who also are not willing to be challenged, right? If, that can happen in both cases. Oh, totally. But you're just saying in this particular right. case. Right. So Kyle mentions this kaleidoscopic atonement theory, which is you basically take all the analogies of the atonement and you affirm all of them, as opposed to fo honing in on penal substitutionary atonement. Right. What did you think about that? 
what I liked about the kaleidoscopic is that I think I view that too, where you're like, okay, like Christ victorious or Christ defeating like Satan right. or whatever. And you're like, yeah, why wouldn't we believe that? And the scape, the, he's the he, one true scapegoat. If right. the yeah. Bible yeah. says it, then he says it. Probably where we would differ is I would say the substitutionary atonement is the main thing that happened. The operative. But it is by no means the only way to draw out of what happened. Sure. Like it's not merely an analogy. Something was paid. So this is something that we're going to get to in uh, other episodes. Right. I talked with Keith Ward about this, that there are sort of atonement theories. They call it, they're ontological. They, they accomplish something. Mm -hmm. And then there are atonement theories, other metaphors that are revealing. They reveal what God is like. And so maybe Kyle and I would lean toward, the look, the, the atonement is a revealing of how God always was, and you'd lean toward, no, 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 the atonement does something, accomplishes something real in the universe. But I would also say, and it and also it reveals, yes. reveals things. Right. So in that way, my scope is bigger. <laughs> okay, I like it. Yeah, touche. That's Perhaps. good. Okay, great. Into that. I think a lot of people would probably do that. I don't, I, I haven't met anyone that's like, it's. you can only think about it. As a substitution, you can't think of it as like yeah. No, I else. don't think that there's is one or the other. Uh, but your theology might lend toward emphasizing one or the other, right? For instance, Keith, you know, Keith thinks that like there could be incarnations of the second person of the Trinity on all kinds of planets all over the universe, nice towards any being that God loved, right? And kind so of, if that's almost like a C.S. Lewis, yeah, right. And if that's true, nice. then what could the resurrection of Christ like cosmically have accomplished. Right. It, it couldn't nice. have bent the fabric of space time or something because they would need their own incarnation that they could understand. Sure. And so in that sense, it's, it's primarily a revealing and the, the mm. accomplishing language is for our benefit uh, to understand what God is like. So you, that's one way, which wouldn't make the metaphors obsolete. They wouldn't be wrong, mm-hmm. but right. it would be like, well, primarily it's revealing. But that's kind of a, that's a whole other Nice, that's interesting. I look forward to that one. I can't wait to hear your thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's it. Well, should we just... I think those are the highlights. Should we just thank Kyle for his voluminous time? Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you, Ben. And uh, thank you for listening. This is a long episode, and I hope that it was helpful. Huge thank you to Ben and Kyle for their time. We've got links to Kyle's books in the show notes, as well as some other goodies for further progressive theology sources. Don't forget the Patreon campaign is only $5 a month, and you get two extra episodes every month. I would love to have your involvement. Go to youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. Email me. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Let me know what you'd like me to cover. Let me know what's been helpful, what's not been helpful, what's working, what isn't working. Let me know who and what you want me to talk about for those patron only episodes. All of it. Talk to you guys soon. See you in a couple weeks.